Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Karen Allport, President of the City Club's Forum Foundation Board of Directors, and a member of the City Club's Board of Directors. I am honored to introduce today's speaker, 35th Mayor of Oklahoma City, and author of The Next American City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Sized Metros, Mick Carnett. It wasn't long ago that Oklahoma City was considered a small city in what many refer to as flyover country, a place you flew over to get to a more dense and dynamic city. That all changed under Mayor Cornett's 14 years of leadership. During his tenure as the longest serving mayor and the first to win four elections, he helped secure Oklahoma City's first major league sports team, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and the passage of MAPS-3, a $777 million quality of life infrastructure program, among other successes. During his time in office, Newsweek named him one of the most five innovative mayors in the country. London-based World Mayors listed him as the number two mayor in the world. And Governing Magazine named him the Public Official of the Year in 2010. In 2018, he published The Next American City, which looks at how American cities are reinventing themselves and redirecting the future of the nation by way of civic engagement, inventive public policy, and smart urban design. Today he'll share the lessons learned from Oklahoma City's success and his thoughts on the way forward for America's mid-sized metros. Prior to being elected mayor, Mr. Cornett worked in television for 20 years as a sportscaster and later as a news anchor before starting his own video productions company. Currently, he serves as executive counsel for Jones PR. Mr. Cornett holds degree, a degree in journalism from the University of Oklahoma and an MBA from New York University. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Mr. Mick Cornett. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I tell you, this, is, uh, this has been on my calendar now for several months, and I've been anxiously looking forward to the visit. And I can tell you that the first uh, 30 minutes or an hour that I've been here have, have fulfilled every uh, idea I had of what this uh, audience and what this visit would be like. Uh, they, they, they expressed to me a few months ago, they said, well, you can just pick a Friday, any Friday. And so uh, being a, a longtime sports and history fan, I went to the Brown schedule. And... Uh, <laughs> 
said, I wonder if they have any Thursday night games scheduled. And sure enough, so uh, that's why I'm here today, because I flew in, <laughs> flew in last night, and I, I put on the little mat. I was a member of the dog pound last night. Uh, now, I did not tweet that picture, because uh, being a former politician, I know how pictures can come back to haunt you at some <laughs> particular point in time. But I did send it back to my family and friends who thought I'd lost my mind. Uh, but I, I had a great time, and to, to probably your next question is, I had already left by the time the, uh, the incident happened with five seconds to play. My feet were frozen, and I, had, I couldn't feel my toes, but we were walking um, uh, out of the stadium uh, back into the center part of the city uh, where, I was, where I spent last night. Um, how many of you have, have ever been to Oklahoma City? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have not and have no idea who I am? Uh, <clears throat> most of you, thank you for being so honest. Well, then I think a little bit of a history lesson would be appropriate. Uh, you've heard the saying that Rome was not found in a day? We were. I mean, quite literally, on a spring day in 1889, the federal government had what may have been its worst idea ever. It was to hold a land run and to settle a city in the middle of what was then Indian Territory. And so... As, as it's described, they lined up settlers, mostly a group of desperate people from other places, and they fired off a gun and they roared across the countryside and they put a stake in the ground, and wherever they put that stake was their new home. And the population of Oklahoma City went from zero to 10,000 in one day. And our planning department is still paying for that. It, uh, wasn't a good idea. You can imagine the calamity at the land's claim office at the end of that first day. Most parcels of land seemed to have multiple claimants, and so there was all sorts of anarchy taking place. The citizens got together, and they elected a mayor, and then they shot him. Yeah. <clears throat> Never thought that was all that funny, but I, I appreciate the feedback. It allows me to see what type of audience I'm dealing with here. Um, Early on, Oklahoma City and the state of Oklahoma kind of adopted an economy that reflected on the price of a commodity. So in those early days, it was the price of cotton. Uh, later, it would be the price of wheat, and then ultimately the price of oil and natural gas. But when you base your economy on a commodity, your economy goes up and down with the waves of the wind. And that's really Oklahoma's story in the 20th century, boom and bust cycles one after the other. Well, times were good in the 1970s when I was growing up in suburban Oklahoma City. And then those good times ended, and boy, did they end quickly. On July 5th of 1982, we had a, a bank and a shopping center that failed, failed to meet its de depositors' demands. And banks hadn't closed in that era. I mean, it had been really since the 1930s, since the federal regulators had closed a bank. And we all wondered what this might mean for the future of Oklahoma's economy, and the answer came fairly quickly, actually. Uh, we tumbled. Uh, in fact, in the decade of the 1980s, uh, Oklahoma lost 200 banks. 200 banks failed in our state. Now, I, I see perhaps the cynic in the crowd saying, I didn't know Oklahoma had 200 banks. Um, indeed, we're not a big economy by world standards. But 200 banks failed, and it was, it was basically the price of oil. The price of oil had gone from a high of like $40 down to $10. Uh, 
And when the, the oil-based economy dropped, it took with it not only banking, not only the oil and gas industry, which was our lar largest industry, but it also took down the commercial real estate industry. You can imagine almost every real estate deal by this time was underwater. And so, you know, you take down your real estate, your banking, and your largest industry, and you don't have a whole lot left. And that's kind of where Oklahoma and Oklahoma City was in 1987 when the citizens had the, the intelligence to elect a business-minded mayor named Ron Norick. Now, it's interesting that Ron Norick's father had also been the mayor of Oklahoma City, but don't get the idea that this was some sort of political dynasty. They were business leaders. They weren't politicians by the, by the sense that you might believe. They had a printing company. They were just really serving as mayor as kind of a civic responsibility. And so Mayor Norick ran for office with the idea that he was going to create jobs. And boy, you can imagine the citizens of Oklahoma City were anxious to elect someone who was going to bring jobs because jobs had been leaving the state and especially the city throughout the entire decade. The city's revenue was decreasing year after year after year, so the level of services that was coming out of government continued to retreat. And Mayor Norick thought the best of fortunes had come his way when United Airlines decided they were going to build a maintenance facility somewhere in the United States. And this was kind of the granddaddy of economic development opportunities. It was going to have an annual economic impact to whatever city could land this, this deal of $1 billion a year. And we're talking $1990, a lot of money today, a tremendous amount of money back then. Five to 10,000 higher paying blue collar jobs. And Mayor Norick said, Oklahoma City is all in. We were all in so much that because we didn't have a whole lot of economic development packages to put together, you know, today there's all sorts of tools that cities and government use to try and entice job creators. Back then, people had to be creative. And so Mayor Norick basically uh, offered a sales tax to the citizens of Oklahoma City, a penny on the dollar sales tax for four years. And his idea was that we'll build the facility for United. How could United turn this down? We're going to build them the facility. We'll lease it back to them from some nominal rate. All they have to do is bring us the jobs. And when Mayor Norick presented United Airlines with this opportunity that to run a sales tax in Oklahoma City, United's response was, well, that sounds great, Mayor, but your citizens are never going to vote for a sales tax for us. Well, United was underestimating the desperation of Oklahoma City. The sales tax for United passed 62% if you can imagine. $120 million on the table for United. And so now Oklahoma City's looking pretty good in the eyes of United's board in Chicago. And on a now fateful day in Oklahoma City history, there was a press conference called. The CEO of United Airlines came up. It was live television back in Oklahoma City because we were on the edge of our seats waiting for the first good news seemingly we'd had in a long, long time. And United's CEO said, we're going to build this facility in Indianapolis. And it was about that quiet in Oklahoma City. And we didn't really know what had gone wrong. Mayor Norick didn't know what had gone wrong. He was just completely confused. And so to his credit, he did two proactive things. The first thing he did was he insisted that United tell us where we went wrong. What happened? We don't understand it. We thought our incentive package was the biggest and the best of any of the cities that were competing for this deal. And United really didn't want to talk about it. Instead, they kept complimenting Mayor Norick. They said, you were the most prompt. You were the most courteous. Every time we asked you for information, you provided it. 
You just finished second. No hard feelings. And that wasn't enough for Mayor Norick. He insisted. We've, he said, we've got to learn from this. Tell us what went wrong. And they said, okay, well, unbeknownst to you, we sent some mid-level executives and their spouses and had them spend a weekend in downtown Oklahoma City and report back to the board. And at the end of that experience, we just decided we couldn't choose Oklahoma City because we couldn't imagine our employees having to live there. Yeah. The quality of life in Oklahoma City had sunk so low that we could no longer buy the allegiance of corporate America at seemingly any price. And Mayor Norick realized that there'd been a shift in economic development that we hadn't caught on to. That it was no longer about just incentives, it was about the quality of life in your community and being able to attract a workforce. Mayor Norick did a second proactive thing. He flew to Indianapolis. Now he did not move there, <laughs> although I can assure you at this point in his political career, that probably seemed like a decent idea. Things were pretty rocky back in Oklahoma City at this juncture. He says he remembers flying in on the airport, getting in a rental car and driving toward downtown. He just couldn't believe what he saw. He saw a city core that was vibrant. He saw uh, restaurants and hotels and water features. He saw sports arenas and sports teams. I mean, people were living in downtown Indianapolis. If you lived in downtown Oklahoma City at that time, you were probably in jail. <laughs> no one with a choice would have chosen to live in downtown Oklahoma City. We, we didn't have any downtown retail. We didn't have downtown restaurants. We had some jobs in the tall buildings, but at 5 o'clock, people went back to the suburbs where they belonged. The downtown core had, had just pretty much emptied out of, of all life and vitality. And that's when Mayor Norick realized that we had to do something different. So he came back to Oklahoma City with the re realization that, remember that sales tax that passed? It shows that the citizens are willing to invest in something. And so we came up with a package of capital projects to reinvent the inner city of Oklahoma City, and he called it MAPS, Metropolitan Area Projects. A penny on the dollar sales tax for five years that would build a series of projects to invest in the core of the city and to try and bring some life back to the core of the city. It was things that you might think is fairly ordinary as a brand new library and some improvements at our Performing Arts Center, some improvements at the Convention Center. Uh, but there were some creative ideas too. One was to take this old abandoned warehouse district that we had and build a San Antonio style canal through it with the idea that people would get on boats and they would go through and we'd have restaurants and all that took a lot of vision. Remember, this is a boarded up warehouse district at this particular junction. Uh, he also intended to build a brand new AAA baseball stadium in downtown Oklahoma City. Mayor Norick even had the audacity to believe that we could put water in the river. <laughs> now, I was driving yesterday and saw that your river came complete with water, but <laughs> ours didn't. The story was back in the 20s, the river had flooded downtown. And so city leadership went to the Corps of Engineers and said, you got to help us. you got to make sure this river doesn't flood anymore. Well, they did. They took all the water out of our river. And so I grew up 
in a city with this big ditch downtown, and the grown-ups called it the river. And I can remember being in middle school and looking at my geography books and seeing the rivers of the world and thinking, well, that doesn't look anything like our river. In fact, the, the city of Oklahoma City had a line item in its budget to mow the river twice a year. <laughs> Mayor Norick's idea was to build some low-water dams and impound water. And the water wouldn't flow anywhere, but we'd at least have water in the river. That would be like the coolest thing ever. And in fact, when they did the polling for all the MAPS projects, the river was the top vote-getter. You know, there was also some idea that there might be development along the river, but that just seemed way too out of left field. We just wanted water in the river. We had low expectations at this particular point in time. The polling was awful overall on the package. It was an all-or-nothing vote. You had to go in there. If you voted yes, you got all these things for a penny. If you voted no, then none of it was going to be built. And I think, really, in, in looking back, it wasn't that people didn't think all of these things were worth a penny. What they believed was that City Hall can't build all these things. I mean, they can't even pick up our trash. Remember, city revenue had been decreasing for years. And now they're expecting to, to build this, you know, seemingly a Taj Mahal in downtown Oklahoma City. But Mayor Norick put all of his political capital on the line and shepherded it past the finish line, and maps passed 53%. Now, today, you can't find anyone who will admit that they voted against it because ultimately it changed everything. But I think it's important to remember that it didn't get off to a good start. In fact, a year and a half after the MAPS election, the MAPS initiative was behind schedule, over budget, and the amount of revenue that was expected to be generated by the sales tax was coming in slightly below projections. And so there really aren't more things that can go wrong with an initiative than to be behind schedule, over budget, and not have the money that you expected to have. And that's where Oklahoma City was in the spring of 1995 when we were struck with the largest act of domestic terrorism in the United States history. A bomb goes off downtown, and 168 people are murdered at 9 o'clock on a weekday morning. Now, I always think that it's important to kind of take a snapshot of Oklahoma City at this kind of particular juncture in its timeline. This was a city that had already been through the economic collapse of the 80s. They were promised hope with United Airlines, and that hope was dashed. They were promised hope with MAPS, and here we were a year and a half later, and MAPS had produced nothing but negativity. And now, kind of weighing on our collective shoulders was this emotional burden of a huge mass murder. But what seems to have occurred, and you can only see this upon reflection of time, is that the citizens of Oklahoma City seemed to grab hands and pull each other up and dare the world to pull us apart. There was a certain unity that was created, almost a bond. And I likened it to just as any two people who go through an emotional experience have a certain bond, a certain understanding that really nobody else can understand or appreciate because they weren't going through it with them. It, this was an entire city that went through these emotional circumstances. Well, Mayor Norick leaves office, the next mayor comes in and he realizes that the inner city is starting to look better but people aren't moving downtown. He realizes that unless we do something about the impression of the inner city school system, people aren't going to move back to the inner city. And so he comes up with an idea called Maps for Kids. The inner city school district was unable to pass its bond issues and the deferred maintenance was piling up. 
And so Maps for Kids was a $700 million initiative to rebuild or refurbish every school building in that district, all 75 buildings in the inner city district. Now, keep in mind, the city had no direct jurisdiction over the school system. We had to get state law changed so that we could basically loan our political capital to the school district so we could help solve this problem because it was sort of a civic emergency. I mean, we could point fingers and say this really isn't our fault, it's the district's fault, but it was holding the city back. And um, all 75 buildings had this capital infusion of cash, really a, an investment in 75 neighborhoods when you think about it. And most of these neighborhoods hadn't had any new development in a long, long time. Then in, in 2004, through this kind of collective lack of judgment, uh, the citizens elect me. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I come to office after these two incredible predecessors who had really planted all the seeds of an, of an energetic, dynamic, cosmopolitan city. Uh, they had done the heavy lifting. And I came to office and immediately was trying to generate enthusiasm from our own citizens because we, you know, we really didn't think much of ourselves. We had this kind of history of, of mediocrity. And I, I remember that we started showing up on the lists at this time. Now, the lists I'm talking about are, are you know, those websites and magazines that, that rank cities, you know, best city to do this, best city to do that. And we were starting to show up. Now, we'd be like number 18 on the best place to get a job are number 21 on the, the best place to start a business. And that was really cool. We'd never been on lists before. Uh, you know, we were on lists with, with cities we'd heard of. I mean, this was, this was like, like the emergence of Oklahoma City. And I was using these lists to kind of validate my belief that Oklahoma City was an emerging economy and an emerging city. And then came out the list of the most obese cities in the country. And there we were. We were number two. And um, so I was the mayor who was saying that these lists validate who we are. And so my friends from the media, remember I, they, these television news reporters and, t and newspaper reporters were my friends. At least they had been five years earlier when I'd been one of them. And now they're putting microphones in front of me and say, what are you going to do about this obesity crisis? And I had absolutely no idea. And so I remember, though, I, I got on the scales about that time, and I weighed like 213 pounds, and I went to this government website, and I typed in my height, and I typed in my weight, and I hit enter, and it said, obese. <laughs> I thought, what a stupid website. <laughs> I'm not obese. I wouldn't know if I was obese. And then I kind of started examining myself and my lifelong struggle with obesity, and I realized I had this pattern. I would gain about two or three pounds a year, and then about every 10 years, I'd take off about 25 pounds, and then it would repeat itself. And I had this closet full of clothes that I couldn't wear. I could wear like this much of my closet, and only I knew which part of the closet was relevant. And these were the clothes I used to wear, and these are the clothes I hope to wear again someday, and these are the clothes I wear now. And it all seemed so normal when I was going through it. The problem had become that once I was elected mayor, I was gaining 10 pounds a year because everybody wants to feed the mayor. <laughs> and I realized if I was going to be mayor very long, I was going to be a really large mayor. So I just stopped eating as much. I'd always exercised. That really wasn't the part of the equation I had to confront. But I cut it from 3,000 calories to 2,000 calories a day, and the weight just came off. I lost about a pound a week for about 40 weeks. 
I wasn't, didn't tell anybody I was doing all this, but I was at the same time trying to examine my city and trying to figure out why do we have such an issue with obesity? What's, what's wrong here? And I realized we had created an incredible quality of life if you happened to be a car. <laughs> if you were a car, there was no better place in the world for you to live than Oklahoma City. It's as if we had inspired our civil engineers to say your sole job is to see how fast you can get a car from here to here. And they were really good at it. We have three interstate highways that intersect in downtown Oklahoma City. We have all the loops that most big cities have, and traffic just flows. You can get a speeding ticket during rush hour in downtown Oklahoma City. But I also noticed it was starting to affect our architecture. It seems like every time we would build a school building or a church or a library, one of the most dominant features was the automobile drop-off. And I noticed that at our cars in the suburbs were just starting to take over. You, would, you know, when I was growing up, we lived in a house that had a one-car garage, and then, you know, eventually we had a two-car garage. And then I noticed most of my friends had three-car garages, and then they were adding this little kind of mini garage. I don't even know what they put in that thing. But it just seemed to be no end to our love affair with the automobile. And as the sprawl started taking place in the city, because remember, you could live 20 miles away from the core and be downtown in 20 minutes. And so people just continued to move further and further away. And we started relying on our automobile more and more. And I realized that we had to do something. So. Um, I, with my background in communications, I, I decide I, I don't know how to, to address the obesity crisis, but I do know that the first step has to be talking about it because it had become a subject that we really weren't comfortable talking about. You know, it affects the way you look and it's not nice to talk about the way people look and so our kind of unannounced strategy was to ignore it and just assume it would go away on its time and obviously that wasn't working for us. And so on uh, New Year's Eve of 2007, I went to the zoo, and I stood in front of the elephants, and I announced, this city is going on a diet, and we're going to lose a million pounds. Well, that's when all hell broke loose. <laughs> we had a website, thiscityisgoingonadiet.com. We encouraged people to go on, pledge to lose weight. We had all sorts of dietary and exercise information on it. And um, long story, fairly quickly, uh, four years and three weeks later, 47,000 people had signed up and pledged to lose weight, and they had lost a million pounds. Thank you. We all look like supermodels now. <laughs> no, the... The truth is, uh, those 47,000 people lost a million pounds. I can't tell you that there weren't 47,000 other people who gained a million pounds. But the point was, we were talking about obesity for the very first time. And then came the opportunity for the next MAPS program. And so I suggested, along with the traditional economic development drivers, like a new convention center and a new park and some investments down on that river, which now had water in it, and out at the fairgrounds so we could take advantage of opportunities there, but we also start changing the built environment. And this was the largest and kind of the first baby step in what we knew would be a massive overhaul. The message that I tried to send to our civil engineers was this. Look, we have built this city around the car. Now let's design it around people. And let's see what that looks like. So it included sidewalks, which were almost completely foreign to our community, especially in the suburban areas. Jogging and biking paths 
for bicycles. It included uh, senior health and wellness centers. With the baby boom generation likely to live a long time, my concern was that we're going to be sick a long, long time and we'll just be able to keep people alive. And I felt like adding a wellness component to the city and giving people an opportunity to have uh, make better decisions about their health would be one really giant step. And so we built senior health and wellness centers around the city. Down on the river, philanthropists had started building boathouses. And so we added um, permanent lighting and uh, rowing venues. And we now have the finest venue in the world for the sports of canoe, kayak, and rowing. We held the Olympic trials in kayak the last two Olympiad. We have a whitewater facility. So, you know, again, the water in the river doesn't go anywhere. But we built a, a man-made whitewater facility. So in downtown Oklahoma City, you can now make, take on whitewater rapids. And there's two courses. One is for the elite athletes, and one is for, you know, almost anybody else who, who is not that afraid of drowning and, and is willing to, to get into one of these craft. Um, and so the, the map selection was changed. Downtown, we had a, a, a business leader who so believed in Oklahoma City that when there was a skyscraper being constructed, that a TIF was created. And that TIF was uh, going to allow us enough money to kind of invest in the downtown infrastructure. And so we completely redid our downtown core of the city. Every street was redesigned. We had built five-lane, one-way streets as kind of a, an evacuation system so you could get out of downtown <laughs> and get on those interstate highways as fast as possible. Um, but it also created you know, the, the, the most difficult downtown environment for the pedestrian. I mean, you would hit the, the walk, don't walk sign, and eventually it would allow you your turn, and you'd take a step off the curb, and by now the cars are starting to line up and being very aggressive. And you'd, after about two or three steps, the light would start flashing, don't walk. And you still got four lanes to go. And so you start losing faith in the system, and you start walking faster, and then you're jogging, and then you just kind of leap to the curb as the cars roared right behind you, wondering how you had the audacity to slow them down. That was kind of the environment and the message we were sending to the pedestrian downtown, even after we had created all these wonderful elements and reasons to go downtown. We hadn't gone back and changed the built environment. And so today, this has been going on now for 10 years, what you've seen is, is hundreds of miles of sidewalks built, a completely redesigned uh, grid system. Um, whatever neighborhood has not been touched wants to be touched. And so it has, has kind of become this mantra in Oklahoma City about how we're going to build sidewalks, how are we going to connect schools with, to neighborhoods, and try and, and replace the mistakes that were made as the city grew so rapidly in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s under fairly low standards. Okay, well, I'm going to you know, start nearing the end here so we can have time for questions. But I, I wanted to kind of wrap it, this part up with, with this. How many of you, how many of you uh, ever read The Grapes of Wrath when you were in school? Okay, all right, so almost every hand went up. Um, I used to think that 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 was just something we did in Oklahoma to ensure our children would feel bad about themselves. <laughs> but so the Grapes of Wrath is a story of a very poor Oklahoma family who's given up. They uh, put everything they have on their truck and they get on Route 66 and they're heading west. And when you think about it, they're heading west for hope, uh, the idea that their children might have a better life than they have. 
And uh, if you go to the Census Bureau and start looking over the relocation statistics, what you'll see is the grandchildren of that generation are coming back to Oklahoma. And I think it's interesting that they seem to be coming back for the same reason their grandparents left. The idea of the American dream doesn't seem all that viable if you're growing up in California and you're thinking about buying a home and the real estate prices. And I have personally um, you know, gone into California businesses after they've relocated the jobs um, because the businesses wanted me to go there and now recruit the people. And when you're talking about the rise of the mid-sized metros in cities like Cleveland and cities like Oklahoma City, what you're really talking about is a quality of life element, affordable housing. You're talking about uh, a place where you don't get stuck an hour and a half in traffic just trying to move a few miles. And in most places, there's an abundance of fresh water and clean air. And all of these things are elements that people don't take for granted if they live on the, on the east or the west coast. But it is available in most mid-sized metro cities, and I think that's why in the, in the book it expands on this philosophy quite a bit. But the idea is that the millennial generation and the generation coming in just behind them are much more likely to choose a mid-sized city than they were the very largest of cities, like previous generations. And it seems to be fulfilling that prophecy. Um, <clears throat> so I served as four terms as a mayor of Oklahoma City. And as you can imagine, I did a lot of public forums and a lot of neighborhood meetings, uh, either promoting me or asking them to vote for me or asking them to vote for something that I was supporting. So a lot of initiatives, a lot of, a lot of campaigns. And I noticed there was this repeating theme that I would, they would experience. There would be somebody at the back of the room in all of these encounters, and I could tell as I'm giving my best sales pitch as to why they should follow my, my lead, that uh, they were kind of scowling and shaking their head, and, and I kind of, kind of quickly got the assumption these people don't like downtown, they don't like taxes, and they don't like me. And when I had kind of lost the emotional argument, when I'd lost the, you know, the intellectual argument, I would just, I would close with this. I would say, well, all I can tell you is we're creating a city for your kid and your grandkid. Oh, they hate that argument. <laughs> because if they'd been in Oklahoma City very long, they know it's true. In the 1980s, we lost almost a complete generation of people, a generation of leadership, really. My high school classmates are all over the world. There's probably more of them in Cleveland than there are in Oklahoma City because there weren't jobs in Oklahoma City that measured up with any significant educational attainment. And today, that's hardly true. I mean, we have in-migration from Texas, especially the North Dallas area, and in-migration from California. We're replacing decades and decades of population moving the other way. All right, that's my story. Thank you very much for, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Mick Cornett, the 35th mayor of Oklahoma City and the author of The Next American City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Size Metros. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. <coughs> Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Rini Orasanya. 
May we have the first question, please? Hi, thanks Hi. for being here. Um, so I'm gonna ask the question that probably a lot of people are thinking about in terms of uh, private public partnerships and incentives, Amazon. Um, it sounds like in the um, 80s you realized, as you said, that it's about quality of life. And it sounds like Oklahoma City really decided to prioritize its residents, and that is what brought jobs and economic development. Can you talk a little bit more of that and how or if that mindset has continued in today's economic development policies in other cities. Um, and maybe speak a little bit more of that example of how prioritizing your current residents and the people who live there is really a powerful uh, move for economic development. Right, Thanks. well, companies like Amazon wanna make sure that their workforce is happy. It's been expressed to me by a lot of job creators through the years as we've created a lot of high paying jobs in Oklahoma City that they spend a lot of time and money educating and training their employees. They can't afford to locate in cities where they're not gonna be happy because that generation, that millennial generation and the generation behind them are very selective. They will move. They will, they will go to where they wanna live. <clears throat> so I, I spent a lot of time in this speech talking about the quality of life. The quality of life gets you in the final conversation. Then the incentives are part of the, 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 the picture as well. So they work hand in hand. Um, but if you don't have the quality of life that the company thinks is going to attract their employees, you won't even get to talk about incentives. They're, they're not even going to be interested in talking with you. Yes, yeah, so what has been your experience with incoming immigrants, particularly incoming Im immigrant entrepreneurs? Well, Oklahoma City's changing really fast. And, um, you know, change is hard. Um, and so, you know, when I was first elected in 2004, we were politically very conservative. Um, and, you know, if you went and did a poll today in Oklahoma City 15 years later, you'd see it being very purple. And probably more purple than any county in the state of Oklahoma. I'm sure of that. Um, immigration has played a vital role in that. You know, my, my comments on immigration, and I'm edging into the political side of it here, is that we just have to have an immigration policy that we can enforce. And I'm disappointed in Washington that they haven't come up with policies and laws that give us some sort of structure where we can have a legal immigration system that we believe in and an illegal immigration system that we believe in. So what, what is our policy? If you, if you have laws that aren't enforced, people start losing faith in the, in the entire process. But immigration and uh, the, the diversity that it brings is an important part of any city, especially a core of a city. Um, and if you're trying to attract highly educated 20-somethings, diversity is gonna be one of the first things they're looking for. They want a city that's receptive to different ideas and people that look different. So it's, it's an important component of a, of a city's leadership, making sure that they're creating that, that diverse environment and, uh, and is not afraid to talk about the subject. Well, first of all, great story and congratulations. And it's Thank very you. clear to see the power of communication uh, when put to good use. My question uh, is about the cost of living. And given that you've articulated this as a key factor of the attractiveness of Oklahoma City and same thing Cleveland. I moved here five years ago from Manhattan. Um, so I can attest to the fact that's a real factor. But my question is, as people are moving back, how do you balance the quality of life the low cost of living, but also access to quality housing, because we've seen a lot of development come into Cleveland and mm -hmm. rents are starting to go up. Yeah. And so how long can you sustain this and what can you do at a city level to make sure you put in place policies to preserve that, that factor? 
Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a difficult issue that only now are we having to confront in Oklahoma City. We had, our downtown was so dead and there's so much land available. I mean, land is really cheap in Oklahoma City. Um, that what would be considered um, marketplace housing somewhere, I'm sorry, what would be affordable housing somewhere else is marketplace housing in Oklahoma City. It, if you have a job, you can afford a house. People graduate from college and they buy a house in Oklahoma City. I mean, so, but I'm starting to see kind of the first, because of so many success stories in the inner city and neighborhoods being revived, my predecessor, who's, I mean, sorry, my successor, who's now in office, uh, and my former chief of staff, is going to have to deal with that because we're seeing a lot of outside investors. In other words, you know, traditionally, people from other states haven't invested in downtown Oklahoma City or in real estate. But now the California REITs are involved. They see what's happening. And so, I mean, millions and millions of dollars are coming in to buy up uh, existing real estate, and that's going to become a problem. So um, uh, it's, it's very real. I'm not saying, suggesting we've had the answer, but it's not something I had to necessarily deal with e either. Um, our, our housing stock was amongst the lowest in the country. I mean, embarrassingly low, traditionally. And there are, there are you know, it, it, it's still hard to find a place that somebody uh, might be a victim of gentrification. But it's going to start happening more and more. Good afternoon. Recently, some inter-ring suburbs have begun to offer financial incentives for young people and new grads to move into their communities. What do you think of that, and would that be something that would have happened in Oklahoma City? Yeah, I, I, she's talking about, you know, as cities get more and more creative about what do you do to attract highly educated 20-something. If they're that important, where do we draw the line of being what's appropriate and what's not? Um, I don't know if you've heard of a program that's going on in Tulsa, Oklahoma in which they are literally, and I, I won't have all of this right, so do your own research, but basically they'll pay $10,000 for a young entrepreneurial person who uh, has some sort of IT background and, and business plan. They will pay them $10,000 if they'll stay in Tulsa for a year. They just have to live there. And their hope and the early experience is that those people aren't leaving at the end of a year that they've had an opportunity to welcome them into the community, show how supportive they are of young entrepreneurs. We're always trying to attract people with IT backgrounds because almost every business leader will tell you that they just can't hire enough people in those areas. And so Tulsa's going as far as just writing a check and saying, here. Yeah, I mean, you can't be more direct than that, I don't think. Uh, and, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, well, I mean, that's going to, is that going to speak of desperation? I mean, what does that say when they're paying you to move to their city? I think what it's saying is that, that they have a lot of confidence that you're going to stay. And uh, this is philanthropically uh, supported. It is not government that's paying this $10,000. They have the, the support of a, of a philanthropist named George Kaiser, who's uh, very supportive of Tulsa and very wealthy. And, uh, and he kind of started the seed to, to start that going. But it's still going on, and it's still available. Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, I, I think you're going to see more and more things like that. I think people are realizing you've got to attract people. That, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know the, the old metrics of designing a city around, you know, a transportation corridor only or that people were going to move there for a job, uh, they're going to live where they want to live. And the jobs are going to go to the people. First of all, I've just got to get to Oklahoma City, and maybe uh, maybe we'll, I'll use your travel formula when the Cavaliers play the Thunder sometime. Mm -hmm. We'll be up when I get there. Right. The, the question is this: uh, 
here in the Cleveland area, and uh, we just, I think just in this county, we have 50 suburbs, adjacent county, there's probably another 50 suburbs, some mm -hmm. might term it a dated form of government. How does Oklahoma City, what's its relationship with its suburbs, and how do you see the relationship for mid-sized cities evolving with its suburbs going yeah, forward? Yeah, we're, we're not a good model. Um, you know, I, what I always fall back on when this conversation comes up is if you were designing a government from scratch, it would look nothing like what we have, it, whether you're talking about the Cleveland area or in Oklahoma City. So in, our, in Oklahoma County, I think there's, <clears throat> there's 13 municipalities, which means 13 police departments, 13 fire departments. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of overlap between county government and city services, and it's a very, very inefficient process. Every time we try to take this on, the, you know, the political uh, fences go up and it becomes very, very difficult to deal with. Um, we're also um, uh, kind of dealing with, we have 23 school districts that serve kids that live in the Oklahoma City limits. So, yeah. And, uh, and one of the political geniuses of my predecessor who did Maps for Kids is he got all 24 school districts to agree to one funding formula for that for that plan. He got, if you can get 24 school districts to agree on anything, I know, that's amazing. That's like, it should be in the Initiative Hall of Fame uh, on, on its own. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't have, I don't have advice for you other than I see the inefficiency and it bothers me greatly. Um, um, but uh, I, I dipped my toe into that water. I went to some other mayors in the community and suggested that we provide fire service for them and uh, had, you know, basically different reactions. But I mean, we were going to hire all their firefighters. We were going to, um, you know, man their stations if they wanted, and we would save them whatever they were spending on on fire support. We were going to we were going to charge them half, so they were going to save millions of dollars. And in in none of the situations was I successful. In a couple of them, they tried to embarrass me as you know, starting to trying to take them over or something. And in one of them, a year later, they passed a sales tax increase to pay for fire support. Yeah. And uh, no one seemed to notice that we had offered to do that for half price, but, and, you know, they would have the same level of service that everybody else has. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a really touch point. I'm surprised there's not more, you know, citizenry um, complaining about it because their government dollars are being wasted uh, in local governments all across the country. Yes. Mr. Mayor, thank you for being here today. Uh, my name is Jonah Schultz, and I'm running for Congress right here in District 11. And so as a millennial conservative, I understand that it's essential for the next generation of conservative leadership to begin stepping up and carrying our message forward. And so my question to you is, how have you actively been able to successfully engage and communicate with younger voters? Well, you know what, I, I, my sense, and I hate to stereotype people in any sense because there's always exceptions, but younger people, they want, to, they want people who are inclusive and accepting. Uh, it seems like the younger you are, the more likely you are to follow those attributes. And so you know, they, want, they expect their ideas to be listened to, and they're very quick to kind of um, uh, you know, you know, criticize whatever you know, historical uh, lineage brought the city to the situation that it is. Um, you know, it gets back to changes really, really hard. And let me, let me expand on that because um, if, if you're successful, you're going to deal with change a lot. It, it has come to my attention that there's really three kinds of people. Because there's one kind of people that will tell you they do not like change and do not change it. And when you change something, you find out they were right, they're mad, 
And there's a second group of people that's a little bit perplexing. They will tell you that they like change. And then when you change it, you find out they were wrong. They hate change. <laughs> and they're mad. And then there's a third group of people who will tell you they like change, and they really do like change. The problem is that group is extinct. That group does not exist anywhere that I've encountered in the United States or anywhere else. And so I, I exaggerate to prove the point that if you're changing anything, no matter, just you, you just can't imagine anyone could possibly be against this idea. Someone will be against that idea. <laughs> I mean, I have seen it over and over again. And mathematically, if you change 20 things and they're all perceived with the approval of 95% of the people, you've probably made everybody angry by, by now. And so when you're mayor as long as I was, you can imagine, I mean, I've made everybody angry in the city, I'm sure, at least once, and probably many of them several times. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, if, if government leaders aren't willing to change something, then what good are they? I mean, it doesn't, it's, it, it's not very useful to keep things the way they are. It, it might, it might uh, soothe our psyche, because we don't like change so much. But, I mean, we, we've got to, I think, support government leaders who are willing to use their political capital to change something. Um, and, you know, try to, try to support any leader who's out on the ledge of change, because it's a lonely place to be. Hello, my name is Judy Rawson. I'm the former mayor of Shaker Heights. My question is about sprawl. Sprawl is a national problem in any city that does not have natural boundaries that constrain it, has been fighting it, usually unsuccessfully. Did you find that you had to offer incentives or regulations to limit the sprawl and get people to rebuild in the city limits instead of further and further out where it's cheaper? Yeah, we, uh, we've encountered that over and over again. I mean, I, I told you, land is really cheap in Oklahoma. And so developers continue to buy on the edge and they continue to expand. And even though we've had this tremendous growth in downtown housing, um, we've had more growth on the perimeter city. So even though we have started to, re to reverse the, the dynamics and create a market in the inner city, it, it, all we're doing is slowing down this, this slow loss. I was speaking with the mayor of, of Denver. Uh, well, he was mayor then, John Hickenlooper. And I was downtown with him, and we're looking at downtown Denver, and I'm just amazed at all the housing. And he said, I, I appreciate your nice comments. He said, but you got to remember, on the suburbs of, of Denver, they're building more and more and more. And so even in a city like that, that seemingly had it resolved with the inner city, um, we, we just in my tenure started putting in development fees. So if you were outside a certain ring, it costs a little more to, to develop property with the idea that they were creating uh, additional expenses for our infrastructure and our public safety responsibilities. And that took me 10 years. I mean, fortunately, I kept running. I just wore them out. <laughs> I just, uh, and I was ready to vote for it in the beginning, and it, it took 10 years to kind of, you know, uh, create that change, get the developers to give in, and to get the council support, because, you know, developers are typically very close to their council person. So, I mean, I, I hear you, but I'm all for efficient government. I mean, that's, that's what I try to create, and you just can't create any sort of efficiency when you keep spreading out. You need, you need density to provide services in, a, in an adequate manner. 
Good afternoon, Mayor. My name is Michael Deemer. I work with the Downtown Cleveland Alliance, so I appreciated all of your, your comments about your downtown and building a more uh, pedestrian-oriented downtown in Oklahoma City. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about public transportation. Uh, Cleveland, in many ways, was, was developed around light rail and streetcars, and like a lot of American cities, after World War II, became a much more auto-centric city, very similar to the way you described Oklahoma City. And I think as we see some reurbanization happening in Cleveland, we're gonna make a series of local decisions over the next couple of years about the future of public transportation here. I wondered if you could share some of your experiences in Oklahoma City with public transportation and any advice mm -hmm. you might have for us. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, public transit's not something we do well. So I, I, I preface my comments with that because if I'm offering advice, you'd at least think it's based on some level of success and I'm not suggesting it is. But what my goal was in creating a public transit system and improving it was that at least in the center ring, and you can draw the ring wherever you want, you need a bus system that people can count on that's going to come you know, every 15 minutes or every 20 minutes and not once an hour. What we were doing in Oklahoma City is you come once an hour, but boy, we covered a lot of area. Well, we did. We had a really inefficient bus system all over the place. And, um, and so it has gotten better. We've also, with MAPS 3, one of the projects I didn't mention is we, we built a downtown streetcar. And so we have the largest uh, startup streetcar system in the United States history. Um, and it was $110 million. And I haven't pointed it out, but it just came to my mind. We, we paid cash. I mean, we don't bond out when to do the MAPS project. So we build something, we pay cash. So we, I think we're the only streetcar system with no debt um, as well. And so that allows kind of a way for people to move around the downtown grid. It's kind of a loop. It's, it's, it's not, not the greatest designed public transit system. And it doesn't you know, serve a lot of people in the city that live further out. But I think it's a first step toward a more comprehensive rail-based system that I think we'll have in the future. But let me, let me also say that nothing is going to affect transportation in cities more than the autonomous vehicle, which we keep hearing is just around the corner, and I have no doubt it's coming. Um, and will, will that develop into a more shared economy? In other words, will we stop owning cars? Will we stop building houses with garages because we're not going to own a car? Um, and if we start, if those things happen, then that's going to create a more dramatic change for city design than anything we've done since the invention of the automobile. I don't know how all that evolve and play out. I just know it's going to drastically change downtown areas. The number of parking garages that we need to build, the lane capacity. Um, and so autonomous vehicles, you know, follow very closely behind each other because they can. And so your capacity <coughs> and your lanes, it all increases. So you need, you'll need presumably fewer lane miles. So uh, if I were a downtown leader thinking about those types of things, I'd be trying to figure out, you know, long term, how is this going to evolve? Because you, we could easily make some mistakes today that 10 years from now are going to be like a silly investment that we made previously. Um, so I'm keeping a close eye on that. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Mick Cornett, the 35th mayor of Oklahoma City and the author of The Next American City, The Big Promise of Our Midsize Metros. Today's forum is the annual Richard and Sally Hollington Endowed Forum made possible by the generous endowment gift by Dick and Sally Hollington. We appreciate their long-standing support of the City Club. 
Today's forum is part of our Urban Leadership Series, sponsored by AT&T. We're delighted to have Nikki Jaworski and her guests with us today. Thank you for your continued support of City Club programming. Mr. Cornette also appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. The community partner for today's forum is the League of Women Voters of, the greater, of greater Cleveland. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Cuyahoga Community College and Land Studio. We're happy to have you here. The sale of Mr. Cornett's book, The Next American City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Sized Metros, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Cornett, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. <coughs> to find out more about upcoming programs and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. The forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.